Hi folks, welcome to another edition of the Veteran Podcast Archive with Lawrence and Ross here at worldwithstination.com. In this episode, part two of a turret view of Normandy, we rejoin Captain David Render of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry as he recalls the bitter reality of life and conditions inside a Sherman tank during the Second World War. In this session, we learn about the horrific casualties sustained by the regiment as they fought their way through the Normandy Bogage and towards Germany. And just to give you an idea of what David faced during this period, the average life expectancy of a tank troop commander was just two weeks. In this episode, we also discuss the tactics employed by both sides, the constant threat from snipers in the Bogage, a thirst encounter with a Panzerfaust, losing a tank on mines, a few tricks of the trade that help keep David and his crew alive, Operation Pepperpot, and much, much more. Well, the thing of the short of it was that I joined this regiment and joined these people, and I started, and we were involved in killing all the very tough. Realised that our day started in those days at four o'clock in the morning. We couldn't get some ISIS out, and we didn't pack up until about half past ten or so at night. When we got back, we had to cajole the men into loading up the ammunition because they didn't want to do that. They wanted to go put the rest down. Have them go to sleep. They certainly didn't want to load up, but you'd have to push them into this. And then, of course. The position was that having done that, we had to go to an old group and all the group with instructions from the squadron leader for the next day. So we probably wouldn't go to bed till about one o'clock. Well, we didn't go to bed anyway. We just laid on the grass underneath a sheet, hoping that, well, not hoping, but we, one of the chaps that could be put the battening in the bottle to keep a bit of food for us. I mean, our food was terrible. What was it that you had to Well, eat? we had tins. We had boxes and we had tins of stuff, McConaughey, which was um, chopped up meat and gravy and potato and carrot. And then a great treat was rice pudding. But I used to keep talking about the food. We used to keep it back all the time. We always had a bit in case we didn't get any because we got colour from them. We went up to Normandy. Now I we got colour five times by the Germans. Other thing we did was if we go to a farm and it was possible we could capture a chicken, you know, live. We'd have them in the tank alive, wring their necks and pluck them and gut them and then cook them up on a bloody fire thing and ate them and give fresh meat. The Americans, incidentally, had no idea of doing things like that before. They had no clues. They were terrific elementary. In fact, we used to give them food to keep them going. Well, this thing here is a place called Brickassar, and where I'm standing there, yeah. this is where the tank was, and there's a wrecking great bang, and a hole appeared in here, followed smartly by another whoosh, and the roof flew off up there, and you see the new roof on, and that was being, it broke from firing this thing at me from here, across the square, and there were loaded mines here. Anyway, I turned the guns on these bastards and blew them to smithereens, and blew about. 
19, I get out and have a look. And I saw a round tube thing lying down, so I picked it up. But that was, this, this thing was called the Panzer Faust. And they also had a thing called the Panzer Shrek, which was a bazooka. And that was the, apparently the first one they ever had, which I picked up and handed over. The Germans invented things as they went along, you know. When they invaded Russia, they had Mark IIs and three tanks, and they absolutely slaughtered the bloody Russian tanks. And the Russians reacted by producing a thing called a T-34. And the T-34, they made something like 30,000 of them in Tank City. And the Russians simply slaughtered the Germans, Mark III's and Mark IV's. So the Germans, without any more ado, completely re-equipped their fleet and built Panthers and Tigers. And, well, I mean, how the hell they ever did it with all the war going on? Goes, God, I don't know. But we didn't do that. And then, incidentally, the, the Russians, because the T-34 was getting a bit outgunned, they produced the KVs and the, the JS, Joe Stalin ones. They were 70 tons. I mean, it's unbelievable how these people were able to rehash their fleet, whereas our people didn't do that. In fact, I'll tell you a little thing. We had three sets of radio in a tank. One was for talking to the crew. One was talking to your troops, your other troops. And the other one was long range, could talk to the colonel or to the squadron leader, which we had to keep off as much as possible. And it would pick up the BBC. So what I used to do was completely illegal with things. At six o'clock, that's slightly exaggeration, I'd turn on to the BBC <laughs> and let the boys hear the news. And one evening it went like this. Here is the BBC. And this is six o'clock news. And this is Alvar Riddell reading. Now today in Parliament, question time, time is question an MP stood up and said, Does the Prime Minister realise the superiority of the German tanks against ours? Uh, Mr. Winston Churchill mumbled to his feet, Yes, of course we do. But look at the number we've got. And he just started smiling. Suddenly, a little voice said, Well, what about the poor buggers in them? And I decided from then on, <laughs> I wasn't going to let them listen to the BBC anymore. <laughs> So I didn't do it. I mean, don't forget, we had crew 266, 266 blokes in the crew, and the actual dead were 298. And on top of that, we had about 1,500 wounded. Incredible figures. Not even much. The Germans lost 1,200 tanks in Normandy, and we lost 5,000 killing them. On average, it was five of ours to one of theirs. That's what Villers Bacage looked like when they'd finished with it. So we couldn't go, that's one of our, that's a Cromwell tank. You couldn't go through a village like that, you had to go round them. And by and large, we did always go round because the Jerry's would be up here. If that was clear, you went to drive down and they'd shoot at you. That gives you an idea of how we had to attack. You see, that front there would be my front, and this would be full of angry Germans. Worst thing was there'd be a load of blokes up in those trees in camouflage suits. We lost 50 tank commanders in a month in Normandy. We had three colonels in five days. The colonels are not at the front. And so you can imagine what the rifles were. 
Well, they'd say, right, you get up there and do it. Well, our squadron leader was a very clued up bloke, and he told us how to do it. What we used to do was we would sit with one tank here by that edge line, another here, another here, another here, this way. And then I would give them the command, right, fire. So we would then fire at this hedge line and the trees as hard as we could go for about a quarter of an hour. Literally. No, and the trees, because of these snipers up there, they buggered the bin laying up there after coming back. While they were firing, I'd say, Rado, I'm off. And I would then drive up this hedge line and get up there in amongst the jerrys here. Mm. and then machine gun them or do whatever we could. In the meantime, the idea was that they got their heads down because of the firing. And so consequently, that's how we did it. And the blokes would keep firing, and then they'd come up and join me. And that's how we would take the tanks. Just out of interest, how much sort of ammunition did the tank, because like, obviously you said you firing for 15 minutes. 75 rounds of we had 75 rounds of 75 millimetre, but we used to put a whole lot more in. I mean, the thing was absolutely lethal, you realise. It mm. was like a bloody Well, no, it was nicknamed the Tommy Cooker, wasn't it? A horrible oh, name. Oh, yeah. Ronson, so called him. One flick and they were alive. But we had ammunition all over the floor and everything else. And then we chucked the bloody shell cases out as they went along. You had quite a few rounds then, so the least. 75 rounds of the main ammo, mm. uh, plus another. Or something like that. And it, would it all and be then, high explosive, or would you have like no, a mix? some HE, some AP. But we then had about forty-five thousand rounds of machine guns, because often it used to jam up, and we'd have to chuck it away because we never bothered with anything happening. We'd just rip it out and sling the fucking box out, and, and, and don't bother with trying to, trying to jam it. Enough time to clear it and get well, it out. you know. It, don't forget, the fighting didn't take place all the time. I mean, there mm. were plenty of times when we weren't doing much. And don't forget another thing was that the men in the tank, I mean, because this is one of the things that often niggled some of us officers, because if you notice, very often the people who are interviewed on the television are troopers and privates and that sort of thing. You get some officers, but not many. Most of them are other ranks. and. As far as the chap's in the tank are concerned, he's in there, he's not allowed to get out. Well, he doesn't want to get out because he's shit scared he's going to get knocked yeah. up. Because don't forget, in a tank, you can't just nip behind a tree or a bush if it gets dodgy. You have to take it. And I mean, we were continually being shot at all the time. Now, the bedrolls and things on fire at the back of the tank, regular. We didn't have, by and large, anything other than what we stood up in. So the situation was that it was a matter that the men in the t- in the actual tank really wouldn't know what was going on at all. They hadn't got the we didn't connect them up with the radio outside, mm. basically. so they didn't know what was happening. And the fellas in the front would often be playing cards or something like that you know, while we were actually in action. Oh, why not? Do you ever put extra, so I saw somewhere that some of the tank crews would put spare tracks, actually weld the tracks well, on. Well, they do. Well, they do that, yeah. We, we didn't bother. You're going to get it. Don't forget, our life as a troop leader was a fortnight. That was your average life. That was one of the big problems, you see, that there were a number of 
tricks of the trade, for instance, I've got you know a board with a little post on the back, and it's about that big, and that's all you'd see on the side of the road. Because if you knew what what it was all about, you knew that that was when you looked on the other side up to Meenham with a skull and crossbones. But coming their side, it mm. showed a minefield. But your side, it just showed a board. So therefore, and that's why I got caught out. Um, not in Carnicurk, um, and I got blown out there. Well, they lay pairs of mines right down the road. You drive over those, and the one at the end electrically is connected up to the others and it would then blow up and then settle for charge and the others would all go up and that's what happened to me blew both engines out of the tank took the back clean out of the driver killed him and all the sparks and you lose all your eyelashes and eyebrows and all that. i mean the fact of the matter is that of course the place not to be is um in a tank where it's being hit the position is that the men in the tank, when, when fear takes place, when real fear takes place, people seize up solid lines. And the, and the way, the problem is that with a Sherman, if it was a petrol one, we went, you got about three seconds to get out. One, two, three, and I think it was all on time. Three seconds. Three seconds. And, a, and, a, and a, a diesel one took about nine seconds to blow up. So you had to be pretty quick. I mean, you couldn't sit there thinking about it, I tell you. Was it easy to get out of it? Or was it like, as an escape it hatch? It was damaged, yeah. But if the gun was in that position, the mm. bloke in the front couldn't lift the lid up to get his hatch open. So he'd be trapped in because the, the basket inside in which the crew in the tug were, uh, there wasn't a hole all the way around. There was only one hole, two holes. So they would in there and get cooked. Couldn't get out. It's terrifying, poor guys. I mean, I, I, I had no illusions. These things were good. By and large, I mean, they missed. Not all the time, because I was a bit crafty. I was very, I was very fortunate. But then again, what actually happened in principle was this. But if you could get over a fortnight, you'd have time then to find out how to do it. What the experience, yeah, that's what you're saying. But the trouble was that, as I said to you earlier on, people would come and join the regiment in, say, nine o'clock in the morning, and by midday they were dead. Because you got your head out of the top. I mean, we had a berry on. We never um, never wore a tin hat. And we had a berry. No mm. body armour. And um, we'd have dirty hands, we'd have a black pair of binoculars, black headset, black mic, and we'd had just around the side of the ring, uh, we had a, like a, a thing sticking up, you know, like a bracket, which the Americans put there for a, a rifle to lean on to shoot at airplanes. And so we used to put the tin hat on there, and they issued us with goggles. So we put the goggles on. And then when we went into action, these snipers with this bloody great long sight on top of their BOP rifle, they look through and they see a sort of smudgy, dirty bit. They didn't think much about that. But they saw the tin hat with the goggles and they would fire at it. And you come out of action, you probably, it was only six inches from your head, 
and you'd find probably three, four, six bullet holes in. So it's one of the tricks of the trade you learned from that. You've got it. Were there any others like that that you learned that made life, I wouldn't say easier, that's not the right word, but... Well, I mean, it was like the, knowing what to look for with the little board, or you never drive forward on a forward slope, for instance. See? You always try to keep keep down so that you, the top of your gun just looks over the top of the thing. That was the trouble with the Grant tank. Mm. They put a big gun halfway down, so the most of the tank was sticking up. And so they then altered it and made a Sherman, which had the gun at the top of the tank. The other thing, of course, you've got to realise is that, in fact, our Sherman tanks were quite tall. And that wasn't really a bad thing because you could see. If you've got one of these low-down things, you can't see what's going on. And the modern ones must be very difficult to handle. And, of course, the other thing, which you might be surprised to hear me say, is this. that You see, we, in many ways, regarded the Bacage country, you know, mm. all the pages that they always say was terrible. And this and but actually, in many ways, it was the finest thing since sliced bread because it hid us from the Germans. And not only that, but it stopped the Germans from the effectiveness of their long-range gun. Their guns could knock us out at two miles range. Well, you see, in the desert, they'd see the bloke and they'd be able to knock him out at a range which we had no chance at all. We couldn't knock him out point blank range. I mean, I fired at tank. You see my wall up there? Well, I've had, I've fired at a tank at that distance and it bounces straight off. That must have been terrifying. No, well, it wasn't very good, was it? So therefore, you're going to ask me, how the fucking hell did you kill him? But there's a tiger, yeah. right? There's a Sherman. Mm. That gives you an idea that it shakes people rigid. That must I be mean, huge. I get people coming up to me after the talk. How did you stand that? You'd be surprised the sympathy you get from the people. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then look at this thing. You see that? This is a panther, and that's called a glacier plate. And that was five and a half inches thick of special steel. And you see how it's dovetailed in yeah. to the front there. Well, we did that, and it just wouldn't go anywhere near. One of the big troubles was that the Germans had the Zeiss firm, didn't they? And they were far better than anything we've got. Their equipment all down the line was better. Think about this. Pistol, right? We had a thing called Smith & Wesson, as an example. And it just faster. And you notice that when you see people with an ordinary pistol. And they are holding, the bloke's got one hand on top of the other, hasn't he? Why? Well, if I had a Smith & Wesson here now, and I said, I'm going to shoot you, and I've aimed at your chest here from this distance, you know where the bullet would go, don't you? Probably not where you're aiming. Straight through the fucking ceiling. It just goes boing like that, and I can't hold it. I'm not strong enough to hold it. That's why he puts his other hand on to hold it down. But what did the Germans do? They produced a Walther and a Luger, which had got its own recoil in it. I could shoot a bloke. Well, you see where those, where, not that wall up there roughly, if that was those trees were a man, I could knock him off from here. I mean, I've shot plenty of people just like that, you see. Because we did, if, you know, if there was a problem, we shot them. But we didn't shoot them once they'd given up. So you were issued with a pistol, that was your only... 
weapon, was it? Personal, no, so personal, I mean. Well, no, yeah, but that, no, it wasn't the only one. What we also had on the issue, that's an officer in the tank, that was, as a crew commander, would be a stand gun. Well, we used to throw that away because the butt on it was fixed and the turret, the, the cupola of a, of a Sherman. Well, you couldn't hold a stand gun, could you? The Schmeiser, the German Schmeiser, had a fogging butt. So you could hold the bloody thing up to your chest like this. Well, in Tilly, in Normandy, when we were doing this business of going up to the woods, you know, up to a hedgeline, the SS, we had it, we fought the SS, the SS bastards were, and the youth were good bloody soldiers, there's no doubt about that. And I had one bloke, for instance, he ran up the bleeding tank, trying to get a stick grenade, or tried to run up the tank, and he's climbing up the front of the tank. And I mean, because I've got this, Nine millimeter, and I just shot him straight off. You see, but I wouldn't have. I mean, a stain gun—you couldn't manage a stain gun. It was ridiculous. It had a very heavy bolt. Well, my friend, one of our chaps, one of our troop leaders, in when we were at Nijmegen, we supported the 101 Airborne to mm. capture Grave Bridge on the way up on Market Garden. We got to Nijmegen, and we couldn't get any further. Instantly, we were cut off about five times going up. We were picking up, you know, I said people chucked out the door because of ammo. And we were picking up because we hadn't got any ammo, you see. We used to, so we used to <laughs> duff rounds out and try and use them again. Because it was going up like that, it was never so dodgy and dangerous. Anyway, the whole bloody lot went up in one night. That was Montgomery's idea. And we got to Nijmegen and couldn't get any further because the Bloody great gun, you see, would fire down the bridge and shoot anybody to ribbon who tried to get across. So we then went south and came down, went down to a place called Mook and Beak and that area. Anyway, at Nijmegen, I had to liaise with the 82nd Airborne. And when we got to this particular place, I said, oh, but there's Germans running about in front of me. So he said, yeah, yeah, he said, I don't matter, he said, because uh, half the time, see, we never went into action with clips up, because if the Germans saw your badges of rank as an officer, they'd shoot you out of hand, just like that. They didn't like officers, and they didn't like us anyway. But the fact of the matter was that it was quite useful, because we would talk, I'd talk to the Colonel, and uh, we would say, uh, nothing, Colonel, what's going on here? I mean, you know, no, I'm only a bleeding lieutenant. Normally, to my own Colonel, I have to stand to attention almost. Mm. Until, but we did cocky buttons. Because we were absolute killers, you realise. We just shot at anything. So the point was that this bloke said, uh, yeah, well, I was there running about. He said, it's all right. He said, they're not shooting at us, so we're not shooting at them. So I said, oh. All right, until he was, I said, my squadron leader, and I said, and my guts for God, as if he thought I was standing there letting him get away with that. I said, I'm going to go for it. Well, you can do what the fucking hell you like. He said, well, I'm going to him. So with that, I said to my sergeant, right, go on, they're coming. Well, he did on that occasion. By that time, he started to come with me. So we went down the slope. Roads were on dikes lifted up. So we went down the slope and on this hill, and as we went forward, 
suddenly there's a bang, if you will. When there's a bang, when an 88 is shooting at you, the round comes at you at 3,600 feet a second. And you can, that's faster than the speed of sound. And you, I, I have actually seen them on one or two occasions. You can see the round coming at you. Anyway, the point was a great gouge appears in the ground just on my right. And the next minute, I've still got my head out. There's another fucking great bang. I thought, Christ, I'm blind. And I thought I'd been blinded. And I got in the, oh, Jesus, I'm blind. And my wireless operator, ever such a nice person, he said, I said, I can't see a fucking thing. I've had it. You know. He pulled the fingers off my hands like this. You know, something. I can still remember it. And then he calmed my eyelids and pulled them up. And he said, yeah, well, what is that like? Um, see, I thought I was blinded, you see, because the flash was terrific. Anyway, we were in dead trouble, and we were being shot up by an 88. Suddenly, it stopped firing, and a chap called Harry Heenan, who was in two troops, the commanding two troops, comes on the air to me and he said, hello, five, because that's how we had him. How do you feel about that now, sir? Thank you very much. We weren't supposed to call each other by now, but I went by particular occasion. Thank Christ you stopped it up. I was I was absolutely a dead duck then. So because when we tried to get back we couldn't, you see, because it was coming down to rain and the fucking tank wouldn't go back up the slope. So we were gonna the fire stopped and well he said that. I'm absolutely delighted with that. He said, I, I, I've just shot up the gun that was shooting me. So what he'd done was he got out of his tank because he was, I was here this way and the mm. wood was in front of me. And he was, he was in the wood uh, slightly ahead of me and he came at right angles. When he looked through the trees, he could see this bloody great 88 gun, which is on wheels. And 20 men round it, feeding it with ammo as I was able to go to shoot me up. So he wheeled his tank and they aimed it in such a way that it could fire through the trees. Because you mustn't hit a, if you have an HE and it hits a tree, don't ask me why it does it, but I never understood. But the bloody bits come back at you. So you don't want to do that. You, know, you don't want to hit the tree. So he took a big chance. Anyway, his round went straight into the gun and exploded and two of the bloody blokes and stopped him. And he comes back, you see, and he's delighted and he's outside and he's got a steam gun in his hand and he's clambered up onto the tank and he sat on the tank and he was on the radio and he said, there you are, how about that, Dave? I mean, you see, and you see. And, and, and he stopped talking. I said, okay, see you tonight. And with that, when we pulled back into the yard, I said, well, where's Harry? I must go and see him. Oh, he's dead. He's dead. Apparently, what he'd done was, as he was talking to me, he dropped the bloody the stand gun, and it went down and hit the floor of the tank, went off, and it went like that, the machine gun and killed him. I have to think about that all the time. Evil bird, the chaps went in there and they got shot up. And there were two troops went in, shot up. 
And then they squatted me, they said, right, oh five, because I was in reserve. Get up there and sort it out. And I then like, went forward and I had them give a certain amount of shooting and so on. Took town, you know. But, I mean, we did this sort of thing all the time. You realise, of course, incidentally, I came out, I didn't get any medals, only the campaign medals. I didn't get any MCs or anything. But I got my life. I had to go, and you see the skyline there? Well, I was in that wood at the back there, and the regiment, where it consisted of the squadron, troop went this way in here. And when he gets to here, mm -hmm. the Germans reared up and shot up two of our tanks and shot them up and killed the, the blokes. And they're in, that's it, they're killed in the hospital, in the um, uh, cemetery at um, Lockham. We've been mm. there just this last week and put crosses there. In the meantime, I'm up there and my tank sunk in the soft ground in the storm. And the driver couldn't start it up, so I realised we were sideways on. So with that, I decided to, well, immediately, I said, right, bail out. So we un took the firing pin out and dug it up the radio and jumped out. As we ran towards the wood, to get away from the tank, uh, we were then being stomped, because you see, as soon as the crew bailed out of a tank, we machine gunned them, rather than go to kill them, because we didn't want them back in the tank, you see. And they did the same to us. So as soon as you came out of the tank, you got shot at. As we came towards this wood, suddenly two or three of the trees all fell down in front of me. I didn't understand what it was. When we got there, I realised what it was. It was the top of my bloody tank had been hit by one of these bloody shells that they were shelling up here. And the fucking top of the tank came across over our heads and went straight in and knocked the trees down. So that was a lucky one to escape. This is a shoot that we did, and that's me standing there. And all this ammo here, do you know, this gun of mine here, shot off three tons of ammunition in the day. Incidentally, when I came out of the tank of Lockham, mm. I'd only got one thing in my hand, mm. and that was that. There's the map. That is the actual map that I had. This is the actual detail here of that pepper pot. Those were the targets that we were shooting at. And then, to give an idea of what it was all about, these, these are my actual notes. He shot from 5.30 in the morning to 6.10. Sergeant Webb was another sergeant of mine, 6.10 to 6.15, and I did 6.50 to 7.30. And um, then we took on 8 o'clock to 8.45 and so on. The, the number of rounds we shot off, 160 rounds a gun, 7 rounds, 7 rounds in 4 minutes worth of shoot off. I, I, I worked it out that I shot, shot 3 tons of ammunition in one day. 3 tons. These are the actual leaflets that they shot at us. There'd be a plop and these bloody leaflets would come down, you see. Propaganda. A nice hat, isn't it, you see? The other side is a hat, you see, a Stetson. A Stetson weighs one fifteenth of a steel helmet, you see. A nice hat, isn't it? Yes, but not for you. To wear such headgear is a privilege for those guys who stayed behind and who knew, who know the game of dodging the draft board. Also, your politicians and your big shots prefer to wear such hats instead of those made of steel. 
Surely you too would look better with a Stetson. Are you satisfied with a tin chapeau? Which is not quite bulletproof anyway. But why worry about hats? Maybe you won't need them anymore. There well look, that's the stuff they used to shoot at it. And this one here, you see. Um, those were about to die, think it over. And they thought we were dying for Stalin, you see, we'd go on and fight with the, the Russians. One of the other things was that our tanks sometimes would be quite close to the German tank and our net would overlap and the Germans would come on, you English finance, we are going to get you. Yeah, and I'd say, oh, good oh, well, hurry up, will you please, because I've got the kettle on and we'll have a nice <laughs> cup of tea. You <laughs> <laughs> just sent them into a great rage. They didn't like that at all. <laughs> great temper. Because, you see, we used to laugh at the bloody thing half the time. One, one of the things you've got to remember about our regiment was that Stanley Christopherson was the, was the colonel, and he was always laughing and cheerful and all that. In fact, it was an act because behind the scenes, the, the padre used to spend hours stopping him from having a sort of breakdown because when the chaps were all killed, I mean, don't forget the terrible casualties we had, uh, he would go on about the fact that he was to blame for sending them into their deaths. And the padre used to spend hours telling him, don't talk bollocks, it's not your fault. But he was very... That the, the senior staff, the senior officers that, that, that were older than us, much older than us, you see, and, and they, they didn't like it, but the, the, the young boys were getting killed off. They were so, they were very kindly. Were you particularly close to quite a few of them, or did you get, did one you have that sort of interaction? One or two I was close to, yeah. He was an Irish chap, Scottish Irish. He used to like me because, in, it started off in Normandy. The Germans had a thing called the Nebelwerfer, which was a multi-barrel bloody rocket firing thing. And we were in a, um, I was in a bloody wheelchair, I suppose, walking about, fairly smart. And we, this chap, Ronnie Hutton, who was eventually uh, about 75, but he, at the time he was with the lorries, and uh, he came over and spoke to me about his experience. Sean, bang, 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 all round us like this, you see. And I just got hold of him, and I, as I was slightly down, and I pushed him straight down into a ditch and jumped on top of him. And then this banging stopped, and so then we sort of got up, and I thought, Christ, that was a bit close, wasn't it? So I said, well, I'm only a lieutenant. I said, I'm not as important as you are. I'm not a captain. Well, that impinged on his mind to such an extent that he never forgot it. And he was ever so nice to me all the way through. Really good. Um, but this is what we were like with each other. You realise that frontline soldiers, I mean, have a sort of an affinity with each other. I then, um, with the regiment, was first tank into Bremen, 
And of course, the war stopped. Well, then, of course, the next thing that happened was that uh, old Winston announces to everybody that the war's over. And as far as we're concerned, well done, three cheers. But let us not forget, he said, that we've still got the Japanese to deal with. All their greed and all the rest of it is going on about. So, in the circumstances, as I was still only 20, they said to me, right, you, you can go out to Japan now and do the war on Japan. Thank you very much. So I then got shot back, went back to England, immediately transferred to go to Japan, to do the landing on Japan. Because I was highly about, certainly now about tanks, of course, because I was their most experienced tank trooper. Got as far as Egypt, and they said, well, you're not going any further because they're dropping a bomb on Japan to stop the war. So with that, we proceeded to, uh, I, I had to be there, so I joined the Derbyshire Yeomanry. I was with the Derbyshire for more than I was with the Sherwood Rangers, actually, up the desert. And I ended up, we, we had, I was a troop leader with four stackhound armoured cars, and we used to go on schemes down in the desert and meet the old Bedouins and all the rest of them. Uh, it was quite good fun, some of it. We, when we got down there, of course, um, we made friends with these folks. Anyway, I was there, and then I ended up as technical adjutant of the Derbyshire Yeomanry, and came back to England, and um, then had to earn a living. So there are, I don't know how to do it anymore. We do hope you found this episode of interest. The third and final part of this interview with Captain David Rendell will be released very shortly. In this, we find out about the differences between the Allied and German tanks, the German Tiger and Panther's vulnerability, the issues the Germans had with fuel, how best to force the German tanks out of hiding, and the way in which David would employ his troops to deal with this threat. We also learn about a friendly fire incident with Hawker Typhoons and the reality of mail and post on the front line. If you know somebody, a relative or friend perhaps, who served during the Second World War and is willing to talk to us about their experience, please do feel free to get in contact. You can email us at lawrence at worldwarsnation.com or ross at worldwarsnation.com. A big thank you to David for speaking with us about his experience and also to you, thank you for listening and for all your continued support.